Welcome everyone to Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus, pleased to present another episode in this ongoing series from Be Here Now Network. Which, by the way, I want to, before I uh, talk about this talk that Ramdas gave, it was from 1989, summer. I do want to mention that uh, all these wonderful podcasters and great, great material on consciousness and spirituality, being here now, is all a result of four years of us working on Be Here Now Network, Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. And yeah, we're having a fourth year anniversary this uh, July. And for two reasons, we're going to honor that. We're going to honor it because we're really happy with the community that's gathered around these podcasts and the support that we have gotten and the feedback that we do get for all of the different podcasts. And it's so varied. It's so rich. I'm, I'm really happy to be part of it. Very much so. And the other reason is more mundane, but real. And that is about continuing the support for the podcast network. Means to supporting the podcasters, supporting the people that put the podcast together from editing to show notes to working with all of the distribution that's necessary. Uh, to get it all on all the different platforms to make it easier for people to access. Of course, there's the website and the, the day-to-day of uh, maintaining and creating new material. We have lots of great blog material as well as the podcasts and videos. And then, of course, there's the whole social media aspect of sharing out there. So a lot uh, of people work on all of this, wonderful people who have dedicated uh, themselves to this for these last uh, four years. Really, we've had pretty much the same crew. We've got a few uh, additional people that are now helping us. So all to say is we're having a fund drive, kind of like one of those PBS NPR fund drives, uh, where there will be uh, rewards for uh, different uh, support price points and... uh, you know, some really, really cool stuff from Be Here Now clocks uh, to downloads to there's a really great, great T-shirt that I love, a Be Here Now T-shirt. Uh, you just got to go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and there'll be a banner right smack on top of the page that you can link to all of this stuff and, and everything is explained very clearly. So if you can, please do help support Be Here Now Network in any way, any amount, uh, or even just getting a note from you saying how much you uh, appreciate one podcast or another. You know, it's great for us to get feedback from y'all. So uh, again, that starts uh, when this podcast goes up, which is, uh, I believe, July 8th. 2020, in the middle of a lot of stuff, isn't it so? 
Okay, let's just talk about this particular chat from Ramdas, which is an excerpt. It's called Innocence, Lightness, Faith, and Truth. I don't think I've ever heard Ramdas talking about innocence whatsoever. Uh, and it made me really uh, sit up on that one because I started thinking about when I first went to in India and how innocent I was. I knew nothing. All I knew was I, I got this tremendous uh, hit from Ramdas, just loving and unconditionality and um, trust and honesty, you know, all of it. That every one of us has gotten, if you saw him back then when I saw him, met him, or now. I mean, we have people write to the Foundation, Love, Serve, Remember Foundation and, and say, gee, you know, I just met, I only found out recently Ramdas passed and I started listening to his talks and they can say the same thing. They're saying the same thing that I would have said back then. So it's pretty amazing from that point of view. But anyhow, around innoc he's, innocence is fresh, unmarked, and not manipulated before a structure is imposed on something. Um, so I do remember the innocence I had upon meeting this being named Karoli Baba, we call Maharaji, as you all know. And because it was just so wide open. I mean, I just, there wasn't, you know, everyone talks about home and, and, and that's true. That great feeling of being at home upon meeting this, this being. And I, I remember the, the, the way that I felt it, it was, I just folded into that wide openness, no subject, object, I wasn't thinking about myself in relation to anybody around me or to, or to him, and there was uh, he he was just this pool that was so great to just relax into, and so yeah, it was it was a fresh innocence, and then I started to see as time went by, and I became a little bit more sort of uh, what's sophisticated. In other words, my mind started to really whirl. And uh, from that point, I started to see the loss of that innocence. I impose, as Ramdas is talking about, a structure is imposed on something. Um, and he talks about comparing that innocence, which occurs with spiritual evolution, versus that of a baby. One is, you know, the then I remember I was so naive. It was it was great. I wasn't trying to intellectualize anything or figure anything out. And then through sophistication, that happened. And there was a loss of that. And I can tell now, you know, the return to that is such a crucial thing in our path to awakening. You know. And of course. Maharaji himself was an example of, of that innocence, freshness, baby-like. Ramdas talks about that, the baby-like quality. Not carrying, there was no history, there was no nothing. It was just, you know, talk about be here now. But I remember, uh, but he used to act like a baby sometimes. He'd like, 
It was cold one day, and we arrived in Kenshi, where we used to see him up in the Himalayas. This is just a little anecdote, everybody. Um, and and uh, Dada, who was one of the great devotees, wrote to me the greatest book about Maharaji called By His Grace. Get it. Please do. And um, there was a brazier to keep him warm because he was sitting outside, and we were all sitting around it. It was pretty cold early in the morning. And then uh, I guess the coal started to uh, lose their heat, and so Dada took a newspaper, and he started um, waving it so that the coals would light up again. Of course, in doing so, he blew all of this soot all over, you know, soot, ashes, all over Maharaji's blanket, Maharaji looked down and he started whining. Oh, what did you do, Donna? Look at me! I always just like a little little guy. I look, I was so much in amazement, looking at. Oh my God! What is that? It's just like wow. And of course, you know what Dada did? He said, "Don't worry, it's not a big deal." He said in Hindi, but with that tone of voice, "Don't worry, it's not a big deal, Baba. It's just." Ash. Anyhow, just a recollection I had after, you know, listening to this. Um, yeah. We all work to regain an innocent way of being with the universe that is not mediated by self-consciousness. Ain't that the truth? Uh, what else does he talk about here? Um, uh, humor. I mean, Ramdas is always uh, in going back to the movie that came out last fall, and that's playing on Gaia. By the way, you can go and and Gaia is absolutely worth getting a subscription to. It's like uh, spirituality, uh, Netflix on of spirituality consciousness, etc. Got such rich con. You, I mean, even uh, not even, but there's great yoga on Gaia, like, you know, you can't go to a studio, you, uh, you, they, they deliver some incredible yoga teachers, they do, and, uh, and, uh, so it's, uh, becoming nobody is up there playing, okay, just wanted you to know about that, and in there, he, he talks to Jamie, the director, and he says, two things are needed on the path. One is a love, of course, and the other is a great sense of humor. And humor cuts through perspective and allows one to shift planes of reality, isn't it? So compassionate humor. It's not judgmental, so it's not making fun of people. We all tend to do that, that little bit of a cynical thing that goes on. I know I see myself quite often doing that. Uh, so... Yeah, so that's uh, quite important. Ramdas has always talked about that. Um, and the other two things that, uh, so basically it's having that lightness of being that's so important, not taking ourselves so self-seriously. Because um, when the mind grabs on it, boy, it becomes this, very serious reality. 
Uh, and then the other things he talks about are truth and, and faith. And, uh, uh, and he kind of mentions this thing about an Indian name. So uh, here's another anecdote, because when I got my name, first of all, Maharaji gave me two names, and I ended up with, uh, actually, Raghu is my nickname. Raghvindradas is my full name, servant of the Lord of the Raghu. Same means the same thing as Ramdas. A um, little bit different in the Lord of the Raghus came from the dynasty of the Sun, and he was all about righteous Dharma and um, doing the right thing, even though he was God incarnate. He acted, uh, and it's called in India, Mariada. Uh, and K.K. Shaw, he taught us all about that. Propriety. He did the thing that was supposed to happen as a human incarnated. He did not supersede that by virtue of his great power of being that thing there, as I call it. So um, I got this name, got on a train day after I got the name, sitting in a car with some an Indian family and you know just started chatting what are you doing where are you come from and so on and then of course the way they do it in India is what is your good name sir and I thought this is my great opportunity to tell them I'm not going to be Mitchell I'm going to be Raghavindradas and I said that and they both husband and wife looked at me like what did you just say we don't I wouldn't understand one word of what you just said your name is. And then I knew I was done for and became Raghu. Uh, but the reality of you, you know, then, of course, I forced everybody to call me that when I got home. My mother was just absolutely aghast. You changed the name I gave you? Are you crazy? Uh, but there was a way in which the name helped to uh, kind of re-identify myself with, uh, say, a deeper part and uh, that's worked for the most part, but uh, it's amazing what spiritual bypass can do. Uh, faith. He talks about faith, and I'll just quote this one thing, only one thing from this whole thing. Am I going to quote everyone? The depth of our paranoia as separate entities is so thick, and the only thing that opens it is the purity of the unconditional love of the other being. It takes absolute purity for another heart to open, to open with to such vulnerability. And that, of course, was our experience with Maharaji. You know, how thick it was, how thick we were, but the purity of that unconditional love just cut through absolutely everything. And that's what, in terms of uh, anybody who, was fortunate to meet Ramdas over the years, um, or even just see him or hear him. You get it. Uh, that quality is of that helps just cut through that depth of separateness because that's what he's all about: cutting through that separateness. So great talk. Uh, again, don't forget to go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and check out the um, fundraiser that we're doing and all the rewards, which I'm not even listing all of them. There's quite a few. Uh, and, uh, and if you can, help support it. 
of course, I have Mind Rolling, the podcast that I do there, as well as the Ram Dass here and now, and and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Lama Surya Das and Krishna Das and uh, Sharon Salzberg, on and on and on. And uh, Nikki Walton just joined us. Fabulous young woman, just fabulous. So check it out. We are expanding and, um, you know, we're, we're getting feedback that uh, people do appreciate it and we appreciate that. So whatever you can do. Thank you very much. This is Ramdas here and now on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and we shall see you next week. Innocence could be thought of as fresh or unmarked or um, unmanipulated or before a structure is imposed on something. So that when you look at a baby, a newborn baby, the baby has an openness to phenomena. It has an openness to the universe around it, such that it's looking with fresh eyes. It's looking with eyes that have not been, it's, it's prior to what's called socialization of an infant. It's prior to the time that the child is taught um, to be somebody or taught about the structures of the world. It's prior to that time. And it's, I think I was using the example of the hand before. The ability to see that and not say hand would be innocence. The ability to see it in its fresh form in which you are just seeing the sensations before you start to impose the thought onto it. That would be innocence. And, um, as you extricate yourself through practices, through spiritual practices, from your models of reality, as you get free of the mind, you regain an innocence about being in the world. Now, it's interesting of what the relationship is of the innocence that occurs with spiritual evolution compared to the innocence that the baby has. Because one is a... Uh, a naive innocence, and the other is an innocence that comes after sophistication, if you will. And um, I recall um, I did a preface for a book once called Voluntary Simplicity. Um, there has been a movement in, uh, because of ecological issues, for people to live more simply. And during the 60s, a lot of us created. Um, communes in order to go back to the land and live more simply. And um, one day I was in India and I was walking on a back road to, a, to the temple and it went by a village that had no roads to it, just these paths. And um, I had come from America where I had been living in a community, commune, in which we had no electricity and we used outhouses and it was very simple life. We grew our own vegetables and it was just very simple. And here I was looking out in this village <clears throat> and I sat down and I looked at the village and the saris were drying on the roofs and the chili peppers were drying on the roof and the children were playing in the field and the cows, the people were walking wooden plows behind water buffaloes and the whole style of it was so simple and so, um, so earth connected. And it had a quality of... Uh, simplicity 
that felt innocent at that moment. It felt uncluttered by culture, by technology, by industrialization. None of that had affected this village at all. And I looked at it and I, I felt jealous in a way of the simplicity of these people's lives. And it was, uh, those of you that have read Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, know that quality. He was an American who went back to living very simply. And um, <clears throat> I thought how these people were like the people in the commune I had just come from in America. And isn't it interesting that the people in the commune in America were all people that grew up in New York City or Los Angeles or major urban metropolises and then fled those to find this life. And here were these people who had grown up in this life and their parents had grown up in it in, the, in India and their grandparents had grown up in it. And I was seeing that they all looked the same to me. And I thought, aren't these people lucky? They don't have to go through all this. And just at that moment, I heard this sound that seemed very cacophonous with the village. And this young fellow came around the bend in the path, coming up from the village. And he had on a, he had a, a little portable radio to his ear and he was listening to the cricket matches between Australia and India. And he had on a, a gold wristwatch that was shining in the sun. And I saw the pain of his desire systems coming out of that village as a young person. And that was starting the whole process that was gonna take him and that whole village ultimately through Went through pretty soon they'd have coca-cola pretty soon they would have on and on and on until they put a road in and the whole culture would change and then they get to the point where we got to where we'd say oh for simplicity and then we go back to the village and what a major circle that whole process was and to get to see the beginning of the circle and the end of the circle at the same time and i realized that this was an innocence and the other was having gone through it and then being trying to regain the innocence. And the question is, can you regain the innocence? And you can't regain it with your intellect, clearly. But when I was with my guru, I got a sense that when your awareness gets free of your, um, the stuff of your mind, you are like a baby again. There is a quality of innocence. And yet it doesn't, it's innocent wisdom. It's simple wisdom. It was a quality of innocence, as if he was looking at everything freshly each moment, as if he was not carrying a history of stuff with him. And there was a quality of like a baby-like quality. And I realized that we all work to regain our innocent way of being with the universe because it is not mediated by self-consciousness. The baby doesn't have a sense that it's a baby relating to the world. It's taught that. It doesn't start with that. And innocence is before self-consciousness. There is no self-conscious innocence. So it's interesting how we play with that issue to regain the immediacy of life so that we are really in the present moment all the time without mediating it with the self-consciousness. And we started from there and then we attempt to return to there. So innocence is very much part of the spiritual journey, the way we play with it. It's right at the edge of that all the time. Yeah. I, th I would say that it's not awareness of God. I would say it is awareness in God. 
it is they are one with it. Only later do when you when a baby comes in, the baby is it's like the door they op, come in the door is open. They are still part of the universe. Then they start to learn separateness. Then the door closes. And you watch a baby develop, and you see. They say, for example, in the Gita and a lot of the holy texts, that a fortunate baby is one that's born into a family of yogis. What they mean are beings who are in yoga or in union with God, who are not caught in separateness, so that they don't like when you see your baby. Usually, you go, "My baby," and this is an entity. And you forget that it's part of the one because you get so preoccupied with this separate entity, and you teach it its separateness. If you, on the other hand, are not caught in your separateness, and you see that it is only the dance of the one in these two forms, in which you happen to be the father or happen to be the mother, and this happens to be the baby, but it's the one dancing with the one. When you come with that sense. Then you relate to the baby in a way that the baby, your mind doesn't close the baby's mind down so fast. That's what it means to be in the family of a yogi. And then the baby's mind will probably have to close sooner or later in order for it to be functioning as a social unit entity. It has to become somebody. But if it becomes somebody when it has developed its rational conceptual mind, it can move in and out of it much more easily. Then, if it develops it at the emotional level, preconceptually, like in the first 15 months of life, but the problem is most parents are so attached. Like there's a story of Krishna and his stepmother. Krishna and his stepmother. Krishna is a baby, Gopala, and his stepmother. And at one point, she's holding Krishna, who came fully conscious and stayed fully conscious all the way through. Nothing closed for Krishna. And she's holding Krishna, and he opens his mouth, and she looks into his mouth, and she sees the entire universe. She sees the planets and the stars and the whole thing because it's God. I mean, it's got everything in it. And she freaks. She completely falls apart. And at that point, it says he veils her eyes out of compassion with mother love. Okay. In other words, he covers it over back into dualism. So that she could see that it's just her child and masks it, and in a way, the masking is that you don't see your child as God because it would be almost unbearable. It would be unbearable to see that much. So we are all veiled in the way we see each other, and part of our awakening is to to be able to set aside the veil. And if you're fortunate and you grew up in a family that didn't take separateness too seriously, you may end up. So that you learn to be separate later on, and then you can let go of it much more easily. That's the art form. Yeah. Well, there are two aspects to the relation of humor to spiritual work that I immediately come to mind. There are probably others, but the first is humor as an upaya or as a practice, and the second is the humor that happens as you start to see through the game. As you see through what's called the cosmic giggle, it's the the kind of inner laugh that occurs when you see the way everybody is caught in a dream, and um, when you look at the world in which everybody takes themselves so seriously,、uh, like when you're t- when you're working taking care of a child. 
and the child stubs its toe and the whole world starts to rain and snow. I mean, it all turns terrible for the child. It gets very dark and the clouds come and all just because of the stubbed toe. And you know that the toe is going to get better in a few minutes more and probably an ice cream cone or a hug will change the whole thing. And there's a way in which you feel pain because the child's hurt. And at the same moment, there is a kind of a, a kind of a, a delightful appreciation that that's part of childhood and growing and lightness. And there's a way in which you're, you're very light about the whole process. And that lightness helps the child develop a lightness instead of the climbing in of, oh my God, you've stubbed your toe. And you know, that kind of, and um, a lot of the, um, the gurus had a certain kind of playfulness about them because they saw through the veil and they saw that everybody was caught in it and they felt compassion for it. But at the same moment, it all seems so, so sweet, so sweet, I guess. It's so sweet. It's so poignant. It's so poignant. And um, it's like the story of the um, Zen master who's dying and his students say, you haven't written your uh, death poem yet because you're supposed to write a death poem before you die. And he's just about to die, and he says, oh, my goodness, I haven't written my death poem. And he picks up his brush, and he calligraphies madly, and he dies. And the poem says, birth is thus, death is thus, verse or no verse, what's the fuss? <laughs> now, there's a certain kind of lightness and playfulness about that kind of imagery that, is, uh, that begins to play with the issue of, of, of lightness. Um, the other particular component of humor as a method is, uh, the other side of it is that what humor does is it, is it cuts through perspective. You take any issue and then you look at it with humor and what you do is you shift planes of reality. That's what humor is. Humor is shifting perspective. And when it's done in a humorous way, a certain way, you laugh. It's take something that's characterized a certain way and characterize it a slightly different way, and then it becomes funny. And there can be humor that is very caustic humor, but the compassionate humor is humor that keeps sort of chiding humanity for its foibles, but not in a judgmental sense, in a kind of a delightful, playful, warm sense. And it's a very liberating thing. It's very liberating to people to learn to take themselves lightly. It uh, cuts through the game. In the uh, organization I'll be talking about later, the SAVA Foundation, which is a service organization, and we do very um, work with heavy issues of death and murder and blindness and uh, uh, various kinds of illnesses with different populations in the world. One of the things that we, one of the criteria for our work is that we have three, three criteria. One is that we should do good and relieve suffering. That's the first one. The second is that we should grow as we do it. And the third is we should have fun doing it. And um, on our board table, on our table around that the board meets around, we have these glasses that are like um, Groucho Marx glasses. They have big eyebrows and a big nose. And, and um, they're called the serious glasses. And if anybody uses the word serious, they have to put on the glasses. We just stop the meeting so that you're in the middle of discussing something that is terribly 
I mean, you'll say, somebody will say, well, we're only giving 50,000 to this, but don't you understand the, of this issue? <laughs> and on go the glasses, so that we don't take ourselves too seriously. And it's interesting to learn that consciousness is the ability to keep an equanimity that allows you to um, deal with response, deal with heavy issues responsibly with lightness. And part of what you learn is a certain... See, there are words like, if you ever read Herman Hesse's Journey to the East, um, Leo is the servant, and Leo is really the master who's playing, who's acting the servant. And H.H. is very heavy and square, and he's one of the people on the journey. And years later, H.H. meets Leo in the park, and H.H at one point says to Leo, you don't mean to say that life is just a game, do you? And Leo says exactly what I mean to say. And you can feel that H.H. is absolutely shaken by that because life is such serious business. And the word dance, or what in Hindu, in Sanskrit, is called lila, the play, the dance or the play of life. Dance, play, game. It doesn't mean it's trivial, it means it has form and it is light. It's a light quality. And it can be looked at from a place, an inner place of equanimity. Your own life. I always keep looking at people who have so invested in their melodrama. If you look at your own melodrama, will I, won't I, can I, can't I, should I, shouldn't I, did I, didn't I, did she, did he... How will it? Will I? You know, I mean, my gosh, I, I promise you, you're all going to die. There'll probably be lots of suffering. Uh, everybody you know is going to die. I mean, it's all built into the system. What are you getting so upset about? It's as if you're surprised by it all, like you didn't expect any of that was going to happen. But it all does happen to everybody, always. And could you imagine getting to a point where you could allow that possibility? where you could still feel the qualities of your heart and at the same moment realize, ah, that's the process of life. Ah, life. Ah, death. Ah, 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 ah. Well, you'd have to be standing to be able to appreciate your own mellow drama as a sort of a grade B television movie, you know. Did she get the man? Listen in tomorrow. You know, it's that one. And when you can do it about yourself, that's when it's fun. It's easy to do it about other people, you know. Oh, are you caught in your drama? How about yours? I mean, to me, the Ramdas drama is, you know, and I say to people, people come up to me and they say, I've come to discuss with you whether I should marry or not. And I say to them, it doesn't matter. Okay. Now, that's the most profound spiritual thing I can say. Because, in fact, if they marry, the part of them that didn't want to marry is going to kvetch, you know, it's going to be unhappy. And if they don't marry, the part of them that wanted to marry is going to complain. So when you're at a choice point, there's no way to win in this situation. And you're going to grow spiritually either way. And there are no errors in the game. So you might think you're making the choice, but you might as well flip a coin. It's all determined. <laughs> So people say, it's easy for you to say, it's my life. I... But then I say, mine doesn't matter either. 
I mean, I'm not terribly interested in how the Ramdas drama, drama comes out. Like, I have no idea at this moment, am I an anachronism from the 60s that just won't lie down? <laughs> or am I, am I these, this profound spiritual being that is just being prepared for great work? I mean, I could buy any of those astral scenarios, and they're all boring as hell. And it turns out that the immediate moment is more interesting than any astral storyline. Whichever way you milk it, it isn't that interesting. Because you and I are so much more profound than any finite story. I mean, if you were to describe this moment, there are no words, no matter how poetic an individual is, that could describe this moment. It is so much richer than any of the words. So you are so much richer than any single storyline you have. And when you see how poignant it is that a person gets trapped in a storyline, in a model, like, I'm growing old. Okay, if you'd like to. You know, that's it. It's interesting how you get into a storyline, like, I've just lost all my money. Can you see how the mind grabs, makes it real, and then it all becomes terribly serious? And it's far out when you meet a being who is free and you look in their eyes and you see behind the game and the both of you delight in the play and you actually play in the forms, you actually play and then life becomes a little bit like Monopoly, you know, in which I'll be the top hat and you be the iron, <laughs> see, and we, we fight fiercely. But at the same moment, there is delight because we are all at play in this game of life. And how far most people get from ever enjoying the play. Can you see how much they look at yourself? How rarely you come up for air. How rarely you come out of the melodrama. Up into the clarity that's just above the clouds that allows you to see, oh, here I am in this. Here I am in that. And it's extraordinarily interesting to keep working on yourself and find ways to spend more and more of your time free of drama so that when somebody else comes towards you, you don't, you don't have any moral right to, to pull them out of their drama if they don't want to come. All you can do is be an environment for them where if they would like to come up for air, they can. You can't tell them they should come up for air because you don't have any right to do that. You don't know why they're caught. But I find myself more and more giggling inside. Just this little giggle, a delight about the beauty of form and the play of form and the way in which the mind plays with it and keeps getting caught. So that humor or lightness is a... And there are a lot of the guru stories, of miracle stories, in which there is incredible humorous play very funny. Uh, I look at Srida and I think of Nityananda and I think of the wonderful story about Nityananda when uh, he was a great saint in India, a realized being. And he was completely off the wall. I mean, like him. I mean, they're complete mishuganas. They're, they're, they're just completely mad. You know, they're, they're called avidut siddha yogas. They're beyond forms. You can't figure them at all. I mean, Maharaji would walk down the street and his, his dhoti would fall off and, and he, he just didn't care. I mean, he didn't care. He'd sit down in a pile of shit. It didn't matter to him, you know, because, and everybody else would say, Maharaji, be careful. Don't sit there. Don't sit there. But 
he just was sort of beyond it. It didn't matter to him, you know, and he'd just giggle, you know, and in our country, you'd put that person in a mental hospital. You'd say, well, they aren't competent. We'll have to take care of them. He can't cope. <laughs> and uh, this story, which may, you know, is one of these bizarre stories that you never know about in India, but because I wasn't there, but Nityananda used to uh, um, hire wor these workmen to build roads into these back villages. And uh, he'd say to them at the end of the day, uh, you can go home and to your home and any rock you want to pick up, there will be your two rupees you pay for the day. So the workmen could go along and they say you only can pick up one rock. And they'd pick up some rock along the way and there would be two rupees. And in India, everybody accepts that. I mean, it would probably blow your minds, but it, but that's just common stuff in there. So the workmen just did it. They just assumed that's the way you get your pay. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> So at one point, a, a police lieutenant and a sergeant came to the ashram and they said, uh, Babaji, uh, we're concerned because your workmen all have these new bills and we're afraid there is a smuggler in the area. And he says, oh, oh, mm, mm, mm. And they said, um, would you um, tell us where do you get this money? Oh, he said, mm, mm. And he, because he, he grunted a lot. He, but he grunted in interesting ways. See, he used to grunt and people that really knew his grunt could tell whether he was saying yes or no. And he didn't care, you see. So people would line up to see him every day, all these stockbrokers from Bombay. And they say, should I buy steel? And he'd go, mm. See, and they'd go buy it. And they'd make a killing because he didn't care. He was just uh, telling them, you know, he was answering their questions. So at any rate, he said, oh, to the police, sir, of course. And he walked off into the jungle, and they were following him, and he walked deeper into the jungle. And he came to a little lake in which there are crocodiles. And he called the crocodiles, and the crocodiles came over. And he um, took one crocodile, and he opened its mouth, and he reached in, and he started pulling rupee notes out of the crocodile's <laughs> mouth. And all of the, the policemen ran away. Now, there's a certain element of humor in that, I think. I mean, I think that's, that's, it's playing with the forces of the universe. I mean, they can play. They can play. Because the, uh, those powers are the powers to play with form, are the powers to play with form. Some of the, uh, the wonderful mothers that took care of Maharaji, one day they were supposed to give him some medicine at 10, and it was 10 past 10, and they hadn't given it to him yet. And he said, if you don't take better care of me, I'm going to turn your minds against me. <laughs> Isn't that an incredible image? I'm going to turn your mind against me, so then you will walk away from me. Now, that's play. That's play. It's playing with the universe. It's the play. It's the delight. It's the delight. It's the giggle. It's the giggle. Yes. At the top of the mountain if you're journeying up the path towards liberation, at the top of the mountain are words like truth and beauty and uh, wisdom and love. And they are, we're talking about the absolute quality of them. Everything below the top is relative truth. Everything, because the minute you go below the top, you're on one side of the mountain or another. 
and you're only seeing part of the truth because there's the, the rest of the truth. It's only when you get to the point where the form all dissolves back into the formless. So in a way you could say that only formlessness is absolute truth. The minute you come into form, you come into relative truth, all right? So that a guardian angel, which is a somebody at some plane or other, is a representation it's a vehicle for bringing truth down, but the vehicle itself makes it relative. It's not absolute truth anymore. Now, the, there are at the moment an abundance of um, beings who are channeling, who are spiritual entities, disembodied beings, right? And the predicament is that everybody that doesn't have a body isn't wise, right? and isn't a representative of truth. They could be somebody who just died recently, was really hung up and really pretty neurotic and not too bright. And then they decide to send messages back, right? So they send a message back saying, you know, buy United States Steel, but they always lost on the market and uh, they aren't to be trusted. So, um, I have found as many beings on the astral planes who are serving as guardian angels who are kind of hung up as people on this plane. I mean, I realize it's people with the same range of attachments. So just because a being doesn't have a body doesn't mean they're enlightened, right? It doesn't mean they're true. So you have to trust your intuitive heart as to which beings to listen to. And when somebody sends wisdom, through somebody or directly to you, like a guardian angel or somebody that's watching and helping, attempting to help you, you've got to run it through your intuitive heart. Does it feel right on? Because your intuitive heart, much better than your intellectual mind, knows truth because it is one with that place in the jivatman or whatever you want to call it. It's one with the truth. So you have to always run it through. For example, I've done uh, prefaces for now the second book by Emmanuel. And I know a lot of you have made contact with, or some of you have made contact with Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a disembodied being and he's charming. I mean, when you say, and I said to Emmanuel, what will I tell people about death? He said, tell them it's absolutely safe, <laughs> which is an incredible one-liner. I mean, that's just an extraordinary one-liner. And, um, I find him charming and light and interesting and useful and very helpful, but I don't find him enlightened. I find him awake and very wise, and he's like a wonderful wise uncle to me, but I don't experience him as free, and I don't think he presents himself that way either because there are many, many planes of consciousness other than this physical plane, and there are beings on all these planes. And some of them are subtler and subtler and subtler and subtler until you get to what's called the Brahma Loka, where beings are just thought forms. They're not even entities anymore. They're just thoughts. They're just very, uh, Plato talks about the realm of pure idea. It's that kind of realm. But as long as you're in form, you're not in absolute truth. Okay. Do you have another question? Yeah. What's in a name? When I was uh, given the name Ramdas, um, I didn't know what it meant. And I said to um, my teacher, Haridas, I said, is it good? And he said, oh, it's very good. And it turned out to mean Hanuman, the monkey. And, uh, 
and I started to, it said servant of God. Now, when you've grown up in the middle class, as a Jewish middle class boy, servants are, um, we, we have a servant problem, see? <laughs> and uh, to be named servant is really strange. I mean, you'd like to be named master, you know, master Albert, something like that. Master Ram or something like that, but servant of God. So I came back somewhat confused by it. And then uh, I started to be that because my guru had said that was my name. And people started to call me Ramdas. And so every time anybody called me that, it forced me to reflect upon that issue. And as I continued to reflect upon it, I got in more and more deeply into an understanding of the relation to coming to God through service. And what it did was that name started to change the people that called me that and changed me as well. Right? Now, um, because I'm a public person, I mean, I lecture and so on, it has gotten to the point, it got to the point a few years ago where I began to feel that my availability to many people was limited by my using my Indian name. That is, there were a lot of people who the minute they hear an Indian name in the West, they think you're a member of a cult, like you're connected with Bhagwan Rajneesh or something like that, you see. And um, so I thought maybe I should go back to Richard because I no longer need that name since I don't forget that anymore. It's like when I came back from India, I had a long beard and beads and I wore a dress and I was barefoot. And in New York City, that affected the way people treated you. I mean, they just didn't come up and say, hey man, you want a drink? I mean, it was like, it, it forced a certain kind of reaction from the universe around you. And it was a protective shield in a way. And then as I needed it less and less, I kept cutting the beard back and back and back. And you see what it's down to now. Because as I didn't need the protection anymore. And once you are the name, then you can do what you wish. It doesn't really matter. I didn't change my name back because people resisted it so strongly. I mean, at this point, I mean, like the publisher wouldn't publish the books as Richard Alpert. Who knows Richard Alpert? You know, Ramdas is different. So, and, but it wasn't just the publisher. It was really that, first of all, a name with God in it is much more beautiful. I mean, my parents gave me the name Richard because out of an affectation, that was what it was. It didn't come out of any deep spiritual connection to Judaism. Richard is not a Jewish name. And uh, so that it didn't have that meaning to me. So I was really quite ready to um, either go to my Hebrew name, Reuven ben Chaim, which means Richard, the son of Hyman, or go into, stay in my Indian name, because at least they had a, a, a historical significance. And I finally decided to stay with my Hindu name. So my sense is that, um, what does your dog say? What does your dog say? She died. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. We got to add that ingredient in. 
I'll tell you, my sense is that the culture in the West is ready to be able to handle those names. And that that's a name that's become very comfortable and familiar to you. And it's a name that provokes other people to think a little bit about spirit. And they say to you, what does the name mean? And you, they don't ask you what Louise means, but they ask you what that means. And that gives you a chance to talk about love and etc. And it seems to me that that's a way of transmitting something to other people. So I think unless it's really painful to people around you, I would hold on to it. You know? Yeah, sure. I think if you were going to take on a name yourself, you might look into your own traditions. But in her case, she went to a place where she met an Indian teacher who opened her and whom she respected and loved. And that being saw qualities in her that led him to give her that name. So in the way, the way you get the name, where it comes from, and finally, we are universal people. We're not East or West. And the symbols, you know, to keep yourself caught in I'm a Westerner or I'm an Englishman or I'm French or anything finally becomes really quite a limiting condition. And these are become universal, like being called love, for example, or being called truth or being called peace or being called virtue or whatever. These are universal symbols, if you will. But I see why if you were choosing, you might choose out of your own traditions. Yeah. The statement, if you but had faith, you could move mountains. When um, Nityananda put the money under the rocks, right? he was exemplifying that whole phenomenon. That when you have broken your connection to a specific time-space locus, when you have pulled your awareness back from an identification with your body or with your thought and pulled back so that your awareness becomes one with all awareness, then you start to have the powers to manifest that awareness and reconstitute things, move them around with your mind. These are powers that are available, you'd say, to God. When your faith is complete, meaning you're no longer doubt that you are one with the one, when your faith in God is complete, when he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and you are in me as I am in you, etc., that's the same one. It's the same one. When your faith is complete, the merging between the separate entity and the one occurs. And at that point, you could think the universe any way you want to in the same way that God does, and it would be created in that way so that you, you could manifest any form you wanted at any time. Uh, there's a story of uh, my guru. He's in a car, and uh, the, the, there's a driver in the car, and they come to a little bridge, and there is coming the other way is a cart with sugar cane on it that's stretched across the bridge. It's all as the width of the one-lane bridge, and there's a buffalo pulling the sugar cane. It's going to be a long wait because the buffalo walks very slowly and it's crossing this bridge. And so the driver stops the car and goes to back up. And Maharaji says, what are you doing? And he says, well, Baba, I'm backing up because this wagon is coming. Maharaji said, just close your eyes and step on the gas. Okay. 
Now, you'd have to have a lot of faith, wouldn't you? See the faith? But the, the, the driver had that faith. He closed his eyes and he stepped on the gas. And Maharaji says, now you can open your eyes. And they were beyond the wagon. Now, you can do with that story as you will. That's the same story as Hedgy, but faith, he could move mountains. But once you have merged into that universe, then you could manipulate the world. Then the interesting question is, why would you? See, the only, not only the question is, could you move mountains, but would you? And if you could move mountains, you would understand why the mountain was there in the first place since you put it there. <laughs> you understand? So the likelihood that those people that can move mountains don't. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm trying to say? Yeah? So it's a bizarre thing that you could, but why would you? And that's what you get a feeling when you're with an enlightened being, that they see... They could change you and make you fully enlightened at the moment, but why override karma? They understand why it is the way it is. They're part of why it is the way it is, and it's all unfolding perfectly the way they're seeing it. They understand what your suffering is about. They understand the way it's grace. What the miracle does is it quiets your mind and opens your heart. When my guru knew everything about my history, he blew my mind, and my mind was the mind of a professor. And when he blew it out, I could feel it go tilt. I mean, I could feel it unable to deal with the data. He, there was no way he could know what he just told me by any means that my mind could comprehend. And when my mind gave up, my heart opened. It was then my heart was able to open because up until then my mind was too strong and it wouldn't let my heart open. And so in a way, that's what the miracles do. They are useful in that process of just keeping people understanding the possibility that it isn't the way you think it is. That's roughly what they're about. Yeah. Uh, you mean the powers? I don't think that you open up just because of the powers. I think that if I had opened because of the powers and then something had felt wrong in my heart, I think I would have ultimately closed down. I think that there's a protective device in each of us in which our, the depth of our paranoia as separate entities is so thick. And the only thing that opens it is the purity of the unconditional love of the other being. I don't think that another being who's out to con you can ultimately open you in the deepest sense. I think they can open your mind where you say, oh, I'm open, I'm open, I'm open. But I don't think that's true openness. Do you hear what I'm, I'm playing with right there? It's a very interesting thing. I've been studying the interaction between people and realizing that it takes absolute purity for, for another heart to open in that way that is that vulnerable to the most profound change. Everything is less profound otherwise. So I think when people get involved in gurus that turn out to have attachments. It was their karma that they got involved. They learned something from that process and everybody goes on and the guru's karma is the guru's karma and it's okay. You know, I don't think it's horrible because I don't think the guru opens the person in a way that they get hurt, even though they feel their egos get hurt and wounded because they feel they've been had, you know. If there is one sickness that we have all uh, had to deal with it is the sickness of the overriding of the intuitive wisdom in us by our analytic intellectual mind 
the analytic mind has a function, but it doesn't have the function to which we've attributed it. We have given it power over the rest of us as if it is the highest final arbiter of knowledge. I don't experience it as such. I experience it as a beautiful tool for analytic processes, as a servant, but I don't see it as a master. What I see as the master is what in Hinduism is called the Jivatman, or, the, or it could be called the pure mind of the Buddha, or it could be called Christ consciousness. It's, the, it's a wisdom that comes with the heart and the mind, not the intellect, but the heart and the deeper mind or deeper awareness come together. And it's a way in which you know the universe subjectively, not objectively. You do not know it through your senses and mediated by thought. You know it because you are it, right? And at that, that is the way you know quality. You don't know quality from outside in. You know quality from inside out. Is that dealing with your question? You want to do it again if I... <clears throat> Because, like, I can, I can have a line of, say, 100 people at a lecture coming up to ask questions or hug or something like that. And they'll all come up, and they're all very good, lovely people, like we are. And it's all beautiful. And then somebody will come up, and there will be something about the, the way in which their need for some answer is so pure it is coming from a place with, so, with no guile at all, with no intent to impress or no intent to do anything. It's just coming out of the, the truth like a tree is true or a river is true. And there is some quality in that that even if I'm tired and wanting to get done and go home, it touches something in me that opens something in which at that moment I become their servant. And it's nothing that I planned or would even want. It's something that happened to me because there is a connection in me to that place in them. Is that, that's the way I would deal with that. It is the same thing in, for example, in music. When you listen to music, like there is a, a Shanai player in India named Bismillah Khan. Bismillah Khan is a very religious man. He's a man that when he plays, he is listening to the sounds of music in the Akash, in the universe, and then he's just, in a way, copying it down into the world, all right? When you listen to it, his ego isn't involved, and even his composing the music isn't involved. He's just passing it through. It's like Bach is a similar one. When you, or Mozart is a very good example. Poor Mozart, I mean, you know, he hardly knew what he was doing. He was just writing the stuff as fast as he could. He was like a, uh, like a transcriber of this phenomena, of this stuff. It was just pouring through him. When you listen to it, it takes you there. It doesn't focus you on the artist. It focuses you on what the artist heard. It takes you out, and it completes the circle and connects you to the higher part of your own being. And then you'd say that's quality. Do you hear what I'm trying to say? It's interesting. I think that um, I think that all of the words and all of the concepts are all just, as I said before, they're the finger pointing at the moon. They're not the moon itself. The moon is very simple. The way to it through words is very complicated. Ultimately, where you're going is simple. And uh, like my guru, when he wanted to honor somebody, he would say he's very simple. 
when he wanted to criticize them, he'd say he's very clever. Do you understand? That simplicity is a, a great attribute of spiritual component. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.